Reading the headlines over the past year, you might think that American school districts are experiencing unprecedented fiscal constraints. Last spring, teachers in six states took to the streets to demand better pay and more state spending on education, in some cases with the support of district officials. Already this year, teachers in Los Angeles and Denver have gone on strike, and their peers in West Virginia and Oakland are poised to do the same. But my guest today has an important message for district leaders. If you think these are the bad times, wait until trouble really hits. While we can't predict exactly when the next economic downturn will occur, now is the time to prepare for when it does. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Marguerite Rosa, director of the Edunomics Lab at Georgetown University. Marguerite is the author of a new blog post entitled, Dear Districts, These Are the Glory Days, Are You Ready for Tomorrow's Financial Pain? that you can find on the journal's website at educationnext.org and will be the focus of our conversation today. Marguerite, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks, Marty. Happy to be here. So your post starts, districts, we've seen this script before. What script do you have in mind? So um, the, the script is basically we've had a bit of a run of sort of stronger economic growth, which means that there are more resources in states for education and that the revenue for districts has exceeded kind of last year's expenditures. And we're due for some uh, economic stumble. And I'll be vague on that because I don't have a crystal ball. But when the economy stumbles a little or a lot, um, we see constraints in state resources, which means that districts don't get as much revenue growth as they have in the past. So this is kind of the peak in spending before we should likely anticipate some sort of stumble. Now, the idea that we're in a boom era for school spending may seem a bit odd for listeners, in part because of the ongoing labor unrest that I mentioned at the top, but also because of coverage indicating that school spending was very slow to recover after the Great Recession. I believe per pupil spending peaked nationally around 2008, 2009, and then fell over the following three years and only exceeded its 2008, 2009 levels in 2015, 16. That's the most recent year for which data are available on a nationwide basis. Of course, we're now in the middle of 2018, 19, and your post suggests, I hear you saying that the past few years have likely been pretty good. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and I don't I don't actually, I mean, I use the phrase glory days as a little bit of an attention getter. It just means we're sort of at a top of one of these roller coaster rides. And 2008 was the top of one. And so we talk a lot about restoring spending to 2008, but 2008 was a peak. It was higher than the year before and higher than the year. It was after kind of a bull run of the economy. That was our peak. So that to assume that's the steady state is sort of missing the big picture. We see these these kind of rises and dips and rises and dips if you look over a longer period of time, and we're at the rise again. Um, you know, we've exceeded um, where we were in 2008. We've, um, we're spending more even after inflation than we were um, back then, and um, and so even though we don't have a lot of federal data that talks about 2016-17 or 17-18 or 18-19, these have been as we look across districts. Um, years where revenues um, sort of exceeded cost of living or sort of inflation adjustment. And we are sort of seeing 
um, districts make some more investments, but it never feels like the peak when you're in the peak. And I, I can say that back in 2008, people didn't think that was the peak. They thought that was steady state. But, you know, as we look back on it, this is what the cycle looks like. And many of our district leaders now were not in their, their positions, you know, a, a decade ago. And so they may not have recognized, you know, we talk a lot about teacher shortages. Um, they may not have recognized what it looks like when your the economy dips and teachers don't leave their jobs and you don't have a shortage and you start talking about a reduction in force. But that's part of this cycle. And we're sort of staring at the next dip. And, um, and that's why I wrote the piece to sort of draw attention to it. And you're careful to say in the piece, you were careful just now to say you don't know exactly when the next dip is going to come, but history would suggest that it's going to come sometime. The one key prediction you do make is that when the dip comes, state revenue will fall and this will impact some districts more than others. Why? Yeah, so there's more than just the timing. I mean, we are watching indicators in Europe and um, globally and some volatility in the stock market. You know, there's some things suggesting we may be in for an economic stumble. And when I say we've watched state revenues fall, we just maybe that they just don't grow as fast as we hoped. And so let's say state revenues are flat. Well, districts can't, you know, they can't survive on flat revenues without making cuts because they have salaries set to accelerate. They have benefit costs that they're committed to covering. And those things go up every year, even if your revenues are flat. So flat or even very modest growth revenues from the state means cuts in districts. And state revenues are the most sensitive to the economy because they're um, uh, affected by things like sales and income taxes. So it's districts in those states that play a greater role in school spending that may be most subject to the fluctuations of the business cycle, most impacted by them. Right. And there are several states that since the last recession, you know, the state has stepped in to pick, play a bigger role in spending. And I'm thinking of places like um, Washington State and, you know, Arkansas, uh, places like that, that have um, the where the, the state, you know, may, in the name of equity often, um, have, have come in and said, we're going to um, cap local money and we're going to try to really fund education out of state funds. Um, that can be good for equity, but it can be tough in an economic downturn. And you also note the irony that district obligations generally climb when the economy takes a hit. Why would that be the case? Well, and I think that's where districts may not see this coming. Um, so districts kind of get in this new, new, this pattern, um, you know, during an economic growth period where they see a lot of teacher turnover. And, um, and they sort of lament it, right? We can't keep our teachers. Um, this teacher turnover is bad for kids. And suddenly, during economic downturn, um, teachers don't leave, or they don't leave at higher rates. And so a lot of us, when the teachers stick around, they earn the next year's worth of um, longevity pay and um, get a year older and things like that. And you'll see the average age of your teachers drift up. And if more of your teachers are at um, 10 or 11 or 12 years experience, they're earning higher salaries than the brand new teachers coming in at the bottom end. So if you don't have that constant replacement going on, which you have during an economic uh, strong period, then you're going to actually see your cost drift it up. And that's, that's um, you know, that can be tough for districts to see that. They, uh, it often catches them by surprise when we have, um, uh, you know, an economic stumble. 
And I expect that pension obligations could also be impacted as well if the stock market were to decline. That would influence the funding ratios for state pension funds and in turn may translate into uh, increased contribution requirements on the part of districts. Is that another factor that could come into play? That's exactly right. But even on top of that, more people will stick around long enough to get their pension. So, you know, if you think of a lot of teachers leaving at year four um, or three, and then they decide during the economic downturn to stay around teaching for a little while longer, they hit the five-year point or, or another or 10-year point, and that when they might trigger another level of pension benefits. So there's also greater demand on the pension fund from employees. Now, your piece describes work that your team at the Edunomics Lab did to see how, in light of these constraints, 140 districts actually responded to declines in state revenue between 2000 and 2014. What did you all learn from that exercise? Well, what we've learned is that um, that if you, you know, sometimes when we, we talk about a cut, it doesn't feel, doesn't look like a cut from the outside. You think, well, the district had 2% more money than they had the previous year, but 2% more money may not be enough to cover their costs, even the salary drift. So they may have done some, some cuts as part of that 2% growth. Um, but when we see that um, a district actually has to reduce its entire budget by 0.75%, which doesn't seem like much, it sort of it goes into a, a bit of chaos mode where we can't really predict what the cuts are going to be. They seem very political. They're sort of jumping around, cutting whatever they can cut in their environment. And when I say jumping around, we looked at a bunch of them that had these bigger cuts, and they could be for any reason, whether it was a um, a, a cut in state funds or a loss in enrollment or anything like that. And what we're finding is that um, it becomes like sort of strategy is set aside. You know, districts come out with strategy, but then they get the political backlash or the stakeholders get frustrated, and then they end up going over to the corner and cutting this other thing instead. And so um, we suggest that districts try um, to to think about their budgets in ways that more move more of the resources out to schools, let schools absorb some of those those kinds of cuts that need to happen in a way that schools can protect what matters um, from them. But that cutting for districts in general is, is really uh, disruptive. And I guess the overarching message of the piece is that districts need to be preparing in these glory days, as you call them, for the inevitable downturn so that they can avoid uh, chaos when they face even a small percentage cut in the available resources. So what are the specific steps that district leaders can take in order to prepare? Well, along those lines, I think it's worth making a point. And whenever I teach about on this topic, um, uh, you know, I ask the question in, in education, is education mostly fixed costs or not? And people say, well, huh. And, well, there's a definition of fixed costs and, and labor is generally not a fixed cost. But in education, labor feels fixed. It's very hard for school districts to reduce labor um, in, in, in any other way besides attrition. Um, and so we say just acknowledge that, sort of recognize that labor feels really fixed. And it feels fixed not just because we have tenure and other kinds of things, but because the relationships in schools that form between staff and, and other staff and staff and students are really actually part of the learning process. So rather than sort of pretend, oh, we'll just 
cut some labor here and cut some labor there and think it will all be fine, you know, we suggest that districts recognize how hard that is. And if you push some of your um, decisions down to schools, schools can sort of capitalize on attrition. We also suggest now to prepare for a downturn, you know, resist the urge to hire more positions. In fact, take advantage of attrition that you have now and use your extra money to pay the labor you do have to um, maybe take on additional roles, use stipends, think about contracting, other other ways of not adding more labor right before we might have an, an economic downturn. So some of, those are some of the suggestions we have in the piece. Your recommendation that districts resist more hiring even in the good times reminded me of an article that we ran in Education Next all the way back in the winter of 2004 by John Fullerton called Mounting Debt, which was about districts' struggles to downsize. And one of the dynamics that he identified was this sort of use it or lose it mentality that creeps into public sector budgeting, uh, where sort of, you know, districts will fear that if they're not using resources that uh, those resources won't be there going forward. I guess you're saying use those resources, but not in a way that creates labor costs that you're going to have a very difficult time reducing going forward. Does that sound right? That's exactly right. I think when we add new FTEs or new positions, we lock ourselves into another benefits load. And that can be the benefits, you know, is going up higher, um, growing faster than any other part of the budget. And so if we lock ourselves into owning another benefits load in the years going forward, that means we won't have as much money to potentially raise the salaries of the staff that we have. And so um, part of what we make a, a suggestion here is to keep the money as fluid as possible so that you can compensate your staff. And in fact, some of some districts have allowed their schools to hold on to money and roll it over and use it for their school in the next year. And schools do. That's actually, we, there's some examples written up in Chicago about that. But school districts do, um, some of them allow their schools to hold on to money, roll it over, and that can provide some cushion during one of these years as well. I was also reminded of some of my own recent research suggesting that recessions may be a particularly good time for districts to be doing some hiring. That We find that teachers who enter the profession during recessions turn out to be more effective than those hired in boom times, presumably because teaching looks like a comparably more attractive occupation during a downturn. And a district's only going to be in position to take advantage of that window of opportunity if they have some resources available to do so. Right. We link to your work on that in the piece. So um, the, that's exactly right. If we rush out right now where the labor market's really thin and it's hard to hire people and do all our hiring now because it seems like a boom year, then what we don't, we've done is um, miss that opportunity to potentially do hiring next year or the year after when people may be coming out of um, college or other fields thinking maybe I'll try my hand at teaching and we'll have a much larger labor pool from which to choose um, employees. So I think that's exactly right. There's some, you know, it's, it's hard to resist when you have a lot of money to say we should, you know, hire a whole bunch more reading coaches or, or um, social workers or um, lower our class sizes. But to use the money now, potentially either to raise your salaries or add more um, work on for your current employees and resist more hiring gives you more flexibility to take advantage of those other opportunities later. 
Now your second major recommendation after resisting more hiring is to shift budget choices to schools. This is something that people advocate for a wide variety of reasons, but why is this idea of shifting financial decision-making to the school level perhaps particularly attractive in this context? Well, um, just, just imagine a district having to make a, some cuts and the district can announce we've decided to cut our librarians or raise class sizes or we're consolidating extracurriculars or we're eliminating some of our foreign language plan, um, programs. And what you see is um, a district-wide reaction to that. And in some places that might have been the right call, but in other schools maybe you just cut the thing that they were most proud of or that's most valuable to their students. Or you might have cut their most valuable staff members. And the district can't see that across the board, um, but schools can. And so the idea here is that if you, if you move some of the dollars out to schools and let schools make those trade-offs during, um, during you know, budget constraints, then schools will be able to protect what matters most for their community, for their kids, the staff members people want to see, see stay on. And in fact, if it turns out that the vice principal's leaving um, due to retirement, they might say, I'm going to resist hiring a new vice principal because that allows me to protect, protect uh, whatever it is, foreign language program or the extracurriculars, or, or, and that might be a different decision in each school. So um, that's why we suggest doing that. It's also prone to a whole lot less conflict during a cut because then if people are sort of debating trade-offs, they're doing so at a building-by-building building level, which is different than going to the central office and um, uh, bringing everybody affected all into, you know, sort of one, um, one location and, and reacting all in one place. So that's why we, we, make, we make that suggestion. And your final recommendation is perhaps also the least tangible. You say that districts need to build trust around money and engage the community in trade-offs. What does that look like? Yeah, it is the least tangible. Um, it's, the, it's the, we call it the most squishy, but there's quite a bit of research around this one. Um, and so we're, we're learning a lot about the messaging research. And it turns out districts aren't very good at it. Um, people don't have a lot of trust in their districts. They have a lot of trust in their school, which is another reason to potentially shift some of these decisions down to the school level. They have a lot of trust in their principal, which is a, a reason to engage principals very deliberately in this decision-making. Um, but there's a lot of um, uh, word choice and um, approaches to communi communicating with your community that will increase trust. So um, things like asking for feedback and um, um, inviting um, schools to weigh in along the way on how things go and, you know, instead of making announcements, putting out trade-offs that offer dollars with them so people can wrestle with what choices did you consider and why did you make the one that you made? These are all things that really matter when it comes to a community's trust in its district and ultimately its willingness to accept financial changes along the way. Um, and so I know it sounds it sounds squishy, and as a member of person, it seems squishy to me, but the evidence is really there to, to back up spending some time on it. Now, taken as a whole, this is a tough set of advice to follow. None of us is very good about being particularly forward thinking, uh, and district leaders in this respect are, are no exception. Uh, but are there places that have taken this advice? Are there examples you can point to of farsighted fiscal management in school districts right now? 
I think um, many, there are many. So some, if we look across the um, country, we see districts like Chicago and New York City, they've moved to this decentralized model. We haven't seen as much conflict since they moved to the decentralized model, even as they've kind of had some ups and downs. And we know Chicago definitely had a lot of constrained uh, resources. And there are um, some districts, I would say, Indianapolis is another one that's, that's been really careful about how it engages with the community, how it engages with its principles. So they're really sort of following the suggestions we make around messaging and trust and things like that. Um, mostly if you look back across the country over the last several decades, and I mean several decades, like going back to the 1970s and, and forward, districts did the opposite where they rushed out whenever they had extra money and did hiring. And, um, and because of that, our overall numbers of FTEs in schools are much higher than they were in the 1970s and 80s, even after taking into account student growth. And so we're, um, we're you know, because of that, we, we have flatter salaries, too. Teachers aren't, aren't making as much. And I think we could think about this more sort of deliberately. How can we use our resources, recognize what, um, what, a, what it looks like when we're at a sort of revenue peak and what we might anticipate when we see um, a revenue shrinkage ahead and, um, and start a plan for this. So, I, when, you know, I think right now many of the people who are in the leadership roles in districts may never have experienced a reduction in force. They don't know what that looks like. And when that comes up and they have to sort of shrink their roles, it's going to be taking them by surprise. But the, the system remembers that. So we, we can sort of just take this into account and, and plan accordingly. I think it'll, it will not erase the pain of a, a recession or some sort of economic contraction. It, will, it could make it uh, less chaotic. My guest today has been Marguerite Rosa, director of the Edunomics Lab at Georgetown University. Her blog post, Dear Districts, These Are the Glory Days, Are You Ready for Tomorrow's Financial Pain? is available now at educationnext.org. Marguerite, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.